Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. Coming up on today's show, sex, drugs, and asymmetry in the brain. Also joining us is Professor David McMillan to talk about the synthesis of sugars. In addition, you find out what color light your eye is most sensitive to. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. Coming up here on Berkeley Rocks. Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. How's everyone doing this week? Great. It's the uh, Republican National Convention, isn't it? It is. I've been gearing up for that one <laughs> all week. I got my uh, year-old eggs ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta smash some elephants with that? <laughs> yeah, paint them blue, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or is it pink? Whichever color works, I think. <laughs> So are you gearing up for the uh, Republican convention, or is that... No, uh, I don't think I'm addicted to that. We should get places to go one day. And act oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, they love to fund science, right? <laughs> I'm not sure if they actually believe in science or not. See. They believe in this thing called God, but... Uh, elsewise, is there anything else going on in science? Uh, well, have you uh, recovered from your cocaine addiction yet? <laughs> you know, <laughs> once an addict, you're always an addict. <laughs> so we all know that if you're a heroin addict, there's actually hope because there's methadone. But f- unfortunately for cocaine, there's no uh, pharmaceutical uh, drug that can wean you off of it right now. But it turns out some chemists left by Kim Janda have developed a virus which produces an anti-cocaine antibody, and they've tested it on rats, and it seems to suck off the cocaine molecules. Oh, wow. So basically, you take the cocaine, it'll just, like, sop it up? Yeah. So what they did is they injected this virus into the nose of the rat, and at the same time gave them cocaine, and over a several-day period, they found that the ones that got the antibodies were not as active as the ones that just had the cocaine, so the ones with cocaine are usually more stimulated and move uh-huh. around a lot more. All I can think is those lucky bastard rats getting free cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> this is just very preliminary stuff. It probably won't be tested in humans for a while, but the implication is that you can also deliver other proteins or antibodies with this method using a virus. Right, so I guess it would sort of be expanded to all sorts of drug addiction then as well, if you could get antibodies for, say, I don't know, Viagra. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you need that? I don't know if you'd want to take that one. The anti-Viagra. Alright, so this is interesting work that was carried out by Kim Janda, and it's published in the recent edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Have you guys ever contemplated what makes you different from a woman? Uh, well, I guess it would be my penis, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty blunt. 
<laughs> I'm just well, I I learned this. Pointed. I don't really know where I learned that. But <laughs> I have a feeling that's one of the things. I see well, the that's point. one of the things. Another one of the things is that males produce different hormones. Females do. And we produce them all the time, really. <laughs> <laughs> and people have now discovered why some of these hormones will end up making men different from women, or in this case, male mice different from female mice. And that is that these hormones will kill off certain neurons in different parts of male mice versus female mice. So in, in males, I guess more of these cells are dying? Is that the In idea? certain regions, yeah. more die in males, and in certain regions, more die in female. You know, I, I think I died a long time ago. <laughs> so it looks like there's a difference then between the male and female brains as far as producing hormones then. Right. So the hormones actually cause programmed cell death, which is a biological process by which certain cells are eliminated. And the way that they implicated this process in reducing neuronal number in these various brain areas was by looking in a mouse that is a knockout for BACs, which is a gene involved in programmed cell death. And they found that the male and female mice looked much more similar than they normally do. What about mice where both regions have been programmed to death? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you got problems. <laughs> then they could just play very both fields. I thought right. that you have to have both parts to be alive then. Well, very as long as you have certain maybe. receptacles for these things, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, then they could probably test and knock out one or the other and see, you know, the opposite traits. Right. And if you would like to read more about this, you can look at PNAS. Oh, again. <laughs> Our favorite journal. <laughs> very appropriately. PNAS. PNAS. <laughs> and look for a paper by Forger et al. All right, so are you guys really good at controlling your anger? Well, it seems like I get more and more pissed off as I <laughs> go further into my postdoc. I, I think that's sort of the general feature of postdoctoral work. You know, my postdoc is like heaven right now. <laughs> I just live in it to the max. See, you're just pissing Gordon I off more than anything. Yeah, I know, I'm more pissed off. <laughs> Well, so it turns out, though, that your ability to control your temper, though, may be uh, related to how symmetric you are. You mean inside your brain or uh, external features? I'm pretty lopsided. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you look pretty symmetric to me, but <laughs> but it's actually linking the asymmetries of your outside physical features with lopsided development of your brain. You know, my liver's in the center. <laughs> it's good to be centered. Center. Right, so it turns out, though, that uh, researchers have thought for quite some time that a difference in symmetry might ref- be predictive of the ability to control temper, but they really hadn't had a good opportunity to test this. And so what researchers did was they set up a scenario in which they had a bunch of volunteers after measuring their symmetrical features. They had them call up different charity organizations asking for donations and they rigged it such that one organization would be very receptive, the other one would be very mean to see how these people would react. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell them, of course, what they were doing. And then what they did is they rigged the phone to uh, determine how hard the individuals slammed the phone after the (laughs) the conversation to see how mad they were after it. And what it turned out was that individuals who had more asymmetric features turned out to be less able to control their temper and slam the phone down harder after more unpleasant conversations. Do they think there's a causal relationship or is they just correlated? It's certainly a correlation, but they think the causal relationship is that in the womb, perhaps the things that cause asymmetric development mm-hmm. might also lead to asymmetrical development of the brain. Mm. Haven't there been some science papers linking symmetry with beauty? Maybe it's just ugly people get more <laughs> pissed off than beautiful people do. It <laughs> builds on them, huh? Yeah, I'll have to ask Quasimodo about them. <laughs> I, I guess that explains my temper since I, I don't have an arm. <laughs> <laughs> or a leg. Or a leg. Or a half a face. But anyway. You seem uh, pretty mellow, though. Yeah, well, that. the Prozac helps. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but this was interesting work, and it was published in the American Journal of Human Biology. 
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor David McMillan will join us to discuss asymmetric catalysis and the synthesis of sugars. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, the chemistry of life relies heavily on special molecules ideally suited for their various roles. Part of this design often involves an asymmetric structure, which enables their activity. However, this asymmetry poses a problem for chemists interested in replicating these biologically important molecules. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the synthesis of natural compounds is Professor David McMillan. Professor McMillan was formerly a professor up here at UC Berkeley and is now a professor of chemistry at the California Institute of Technology, where his interests include new reaction design and anti-associative catalysis and natural product synthesis. Professor McMillan, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Thank you for having me, Charles. Certainly our pleasure, and it looks like you're doing uh, some very interesting work in the field of an anti-selective catalysis. I'm curious if you could maybe explain to our audience just exactly what is an anti-selective catalysis. Well, an anti-selective catalysis is basically generating single enantiomers using catalysts. The reason why you need single enantiomers is, as you stated in your introduction, a lot of times chemists and people in biology are very interested in generating organic molecules, which are molecules which revolve around the atom carbon. Carbon, as many people who have done chemistry classes know, carbon exists in a tetrahedral format, which means if it has four different substituents, it can exist as two different mirror images. It turns out being able to produce one mirror image in preference to another one has a lot of implications for biology. Sometimes molecules which exist in one mirror image will provide benefits in terms of therapeutic use, whereas the other mirror image of the same molecule might actually be harmful to biological systems. As such, there's a big pressure and a big need in organic synthesis to be able to generate one of these mirror images, which are called single enantiomers selectively. And one way that that can actually be done is to carry out or develop catalysts which allow the production of one mirror image in preference to the other one, and that's why the name enantioselective or asymmetric, meaning non-symmetrical catalysis, came about. And that's why there's been a lot of work probably over the last 30 years towards developing catalysts which allow the production of one enantiomer in preference to the other one. I see. Are there any good examples of two different enantiomers that one might be beneficial and the other harmful? The most famous one is in the case of burst defects that arise from the thalidomide drug. Uh, thalidomide was a drug which actually exists as two different uh, mirror images, two enantiomers. It turns out that one of the mirror images actually provides the beneficial effects which remove uh, morning sickness whenever a woman going through a pregnancy in the first uh, trimester. However, the other enantiomer actually leads to the burst defects which has led to this disastrous phenomenon known as the thalidomide children. So from that, as basically as an outcome of 
one, that is one example of an outcome which led to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, coming up with very strong guidelines on the fact that modern pharmaceuticals have to be registered in their single mirror image or their single enantiomer format. I see. And is most of nature then constructed in this way where an anti-selective, uh, an antimers are more important? Typically, I mean, there's a lot of cases. You do find molecules which exist in nature, which exist as both mirror images, but for the most part, molecules which exist in, in nature and biological systems, uh, for example, amino acids or DNA or RNA, are formed around one enantiomeric series of a core molecular structure. So it re- really is based on one of the, the two mirror images. I see. And uh, why is the construction of different enantiomers very difficult then? It's very difficult simply because if you were to take any molecule and carry a typical transformation on a molecule, when you generate a carbon that has four different carbon substituents, that's called a stereogenic center. And it's called stereogenic because it can exist in two different formats. Whenever you carry out a typical reaction, there's a probability, a 50-50 probability, it'll make one or the other mirror image. So it is to take the same molecule and make it undergo one transformation that will only form one of the two mirror images is actually very difficult. It has to be carried out what's called a transition state, wherein that you have a diastereomeric case where the energy to form one of the two different single enantiomers is much lower in one case than the other, so that only one of the two enantiomers are formed. And so for about the last 30 years or so, people in organic synthesis have been heavily focused upon trying to come up with methods to do exactly that, to make one enantiomer in preference to the other. It's an interesting situation because it's probably only in the last 10 years that chemists have became quite successful at it. I'd say there's many transformations that have came about, or many chemical reactions which have came about in the last 10 years, but it really has been over the last 30 years that people have been focused upon this problem. So what are the tacks that people have taken then to get one form preferred over the other then? In terms of catalysis, uh, there's been several different forms. It typically revolves around the type of catalyst or the mode of catalytic activation. The mode of catalytic activation simply means the method by which the catalyst will activate a molecule, a starting material, in such a way that it will provide a method by which you can discriminate between the two enantiomers which are formed. There's really been three different types of catalysis which have been utilized. There's been two types of organometallic catalysts using either transition metal catalyzed processes, that would be things such as hydrogenation or insertion chemistry, or you could have another type of organometallic systems which is based around Lewis acid catalysis, which a method by which you lower the electron density in a substrate to the point it can now engage in a reaction with a more electron-rich reaction partner. The third method, and that's a method that my group has been working on for the last five or six years, has been what's called organic catalysis, which is using organic molecules to function as catalysts to interact with start materials to energetically partition them between the production of one enantiomer in preference to the other one. It's an interesting area to be involved with because if you think about biology, in many cases biology is organic catalysis, where biology will involve enzymes, which through, in many cases, hydrogen bonding, will allow the formation of one mirror image in preference to the other mirror image. Mm -hmm. I see. And so has the design of the chemical catalysis taken a cue from biological catalysts then? That's an interesting question, and I would answer that by saying no. Up up until this point, there's actually not been a great amount of work that's been focused, at least in in organic synthesis, and in utilizing the types of catalysis which were learned from biology or biochemistry and trying to attempt to take those catalysis concepts and apply them to organic synthesis. Now, in the field of bio-inorganic chemistry, there's been a lot of work devoted to trying and understanding the methods by which these organometallic bio-inorganic systems carry out catalysis and as a means towards to try and develop, design new catalysts which could do the same thing in a laboratory setting. But in terms of organic synthesis, most of the catalytic methods that have been developed have not 
all been based upon what you might call the blueprints that came from biology. In fact, most of them have been de novo catalysis concepts, which have been utilized to try and partition between these two single mirror images. Is it just easier to design these catalysts than rather than having to reconstruct a from biology? Yeah. I think that's typically been the case, and, and it, it makes sense because very often biological systems are very complex, and they're very complex for a reason. They focus upon carrying out selective reactions, but they also really focus upon molecular recognition. Mm. So they want specific molecules to undergo specific transformations from a large milieu of many different types of molecules. Mm. In the laboratory setting, you typically want one molecule to undergo one transformation. As such, it's typically much easier to focus upon developing catalysts, which are much simpler systems, which can carry out or carry out reactions on a, in a series of substrates, but doing them one molecule and one reaction flask at a time. The focus in this case is not to sort of go after one molecule to do one selective transformation as much as it is to be able to take one class of different molecules and to be able to carry out an enteroselective catalysis on one class of molecules, making a more general approach mm -hmm. to what you might call an enteroselective induction, which means the capacity to build one enantiomer in preference to the other one. You want to be able to do it on a general class instead of doing it on one particular molecule. Right, so it's weighing the generality versus the specificity of the two. Absolutely. I see. Uh, so recently your group has published an interesting method for producing sugars in two-step synthesis. One of the things my group is very interested in is a, a concept which is really central to organic synthesis, which is the rapid development of molecular complexity, which means how can we generate very complex or molecules, organic molecules, in a very rapid fashion. And in doing this, how do we focus in upon molecule structures or architectures which are prevalent, which means they're commonly found and commonly used by chemists or biologists or biochemists. But at the moment, there might not be straightforward ways to get your hands on them or there might not be straightforward ways to utilize them. In this regard, you can think biological systems of, I would argue, three main bioarchitectures. You have DNA or RNA or nucleic acid-based architectures. You have amino acid-based or protein-based systems. And the third major bioarchitecture is carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are actually the most prevalent form of bioarchitecture that's found in biological systems. Mm -hmm. And they also have a very widespread role in, in many biological processes, such as signal transduction, cognition, as well as the immune response. The interesting thing, however, about carbohydrates are Carbohydrates are molecules which are very difficult in their monomeric form. Monomers are the single unit form, such as glucose, mannose, allose, galactose. In their monomeric form, it's very difficult to actually take those carbohydrates and either selectively functionalize them or to actually couple them to each other. And the reason why it's very difficult is that each carbohydrate has five oxygens, which are basically substituents or groups which are attached to each of the carbohydrates' central framework. And each of those hydroxyl groups, it's very difficult chemically to differentiate them from each other. For example, if I wanted to take a carbohydrate, which was glucose, and couple it at the what's called the anomeric position of glucose to the fourth position of galactose, by just taking those two molecules and the combination with each other, it would be very difficult to do that. Chemically, you couldn't actually perform that transformation. Hmm. The thing that we were really interested in doing was, was there a method by which we could come up with a synthesis or a way to construct these carbohydrates selectively and as a single enantiomer, but at the same time be able to differentiate all of these oxygens which reside on the periphery of the carbohydrate. The nice thing about this is if you could do it, we would have to do it in such a way that it would be very rapid. If you were to take, for example, glucose from a bottle 
and try and chemically differentiate those oxygens. It would typically take anywhere from between 8 to 14 chemical steps, depending upon how you wanted to differentiate all these oxygens. The method that we were interested in doing was coming up with a, a way by which we could actually differentiate all those oxygens in a relatively straightforward fashion. So what basically we came up with was the idea was could we take three two carbon units, three which are called alpha oxygenated aldehydes, and ask ourselves the question if we could actually carry out two chemical reactions which would build the whole carbohydrate framework and at the same time differentiate all of those oxygens over just a two chemical step process. And in fact, that's the thing that we've been able to accomplish. Wow, that's pretty impressive. So is the inability to discriminate between these oxygens limited synthesis of carbohydrate molecules? Yeah, I mean, uh, you can look at people, for example, in glycobiology or even in other uh, biological areas where, for example, they might be interested in, in generating tetrasaccharides where you have specific linkages between all the different carbohydrates where they're all linked to each other at different positions. And where you may have specific substituents, for example, uh, sulfate, sulfate esters around a variety of oxygen positions to try and test for a number of, sort of biological processes. At the moment, it may take many, many chemical steps to build those types of tetrasaccharides. However, if you could put those carbohydrates together in just two chemical steps and have them be completely differentially protected on each carbohydrate so that you can couple them all together very rapidly, in theory, you could build these tetrasaccharides in six or seven chemical steps instead of the 40, 50 chemical steps that are involved at the moment in terms of the production of all the monomers and then production of the tetrasaccharides from all of those monomer systems. So it's very important to be able to develop methods where you can get your hands on these carbohydrates where they're all uh, differentially protected. So that was one of the main focuses and what we were trying to accomplish. But the second thing we were trying to accomplish with this formation of carbohydrates by two carbon units is the fact that you no longer are restricted to the fact, for example, that you would have just oxygens around the periphery. Now you could start to think about, could you introduce other atomic systems into different positions? For example, we call that atomic mutation, hmm. where you might, for example, decide at the fourth position on a carbohydrate, you no longer wanted to have an oxygen there. Maybe you wanted to have a sulfur. Hmm. To be able to take a, a natural carbohydrate and to derivatize it in such a way that you would differentiate all those oxygens and then convert the number four position to a sulfur would basically be impossible at this moment in time using other chemical methods because the means by which you can displace that oxygen with a sulfur is not straightforward on that secondary carbon position around a carbohydrate framework. Well, by the fact that we're actually building these carbohydrates using two carbon units, that allows us to bring in those substituents uh, from the very outset on the two carbon unit. And as such, we can actually build carbohydrates which would contain a sulfur at the fourth position and, again, only two chemical steps. The reason why it's important to be able to get our hands on these unnatural carbohydrates is really for carrying out our what medicinal chemists, medicinal chemists are the people who really do all the, the chemistry involved in developing pharmaceuticals. And one of the things that they have to do is they have to be able to take biologically active molecules and be able to fine-tune them by changing little components of those uh, pharmaceutical agents, for example, converting an oxygen to a sulfur. That's called a structure-activity relationship. And there's a capacity to build carbohydrates in two steps where you can now build unnatural ones allows you to do just that, allows you to go in and completely pinpoint the atom that you want to change to try and understand what effect that would have, say, for example, in a biological system. So rather than derivatizing a natural one, you build it up these components and you have... Exactly. Uh, it's a bit like saying instead of taking a species or a molecule which exists in nature and basically bashing at it over 
14 to 18 chemical steps to convert it into something else. Wouldn't it be better if we could actually build it de novo in just two chemical steps by focusing upon the, devel- or the invention or development of two new chemical reactions which will allow you to put it together instead of having to take the naturally occurring material and having to try and convert it into something that it's not. I always tell people it's a bit like taking a washing machine and asking yourself, can you convert it into a lawnmower? Mm-hmm. It's not a great way of doing things. It's usually much better to, to try and build a lawnmower de novo than try and convert something which was de- designed for with a completely different framework. Right, right. Uh, well, it looks like we are running a little bit out of time here, but I'm just curious, have any of the medicinal chemists actually uh, are interested in using this uh, method? That's a great question, and, and very interestingly, since this paper was published in Science, we've really had a lot of different phone calls from a lot of different biotech companies and actually one or two major pharmaceutical companies who are very interested in, in actually utilizing this technology. There's one company that right now who's actually using this in medicinal chemistry processes that I, I can't actually disclose, <laughs> okay. but there's, you can basically understand if it was, this is a method to generate and carry out structural activity relationships on carbohydrates that wasn't possible before, but is now possible in just two chemical steps. I think from that, it's easy to appreciate how rapidly people will start to adopt the technology. Right. Well, it is very fascinating. It's certainly a great advance. But we are out of time, and uh, Professor, I just want to thank you very much again for joining us today on Berkeley Garage to discuss all your fascinating research. Thanks very much. And you were just listening to Professor David McMillan from Caltech discussing asymmetric catalysis and the synthesis of carbohydrates from two carbon precursors. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. Sugar is sweet, just as sweet as rock candy. Back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, Professor David McMillan from Caltech has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. Professor McMillan, again, talking about his very fascinating work with construction of sugars in two steps and, of course, an anti-selective catalysis. As a result, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, symmetric or asymmetric catalysis. So the questions are, if you were to construct the following five people, would you need a symmetric or an asymmetric catalyst? Are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Sure, I have no idea what that means, but <laughs> fire away. Okay, the Grokatron 5000. Person number one, symmetric or an asymmetric catalyst, the king of pop, Michael Jackson. Uh, that would be asymmetric catalysis. I think that looks like a, a pretty complex case. <laughs> All right, number two, symmetric or asymmetric catalyst, the Olympic gymnast, Paul Hamm. Um, I guess that's got to be uh, symmetric catalysis. If you think about just the, s- the symmetry involved in, in gymnastics programs, these are people who really focus upon symmetry, so I, it seems reasonable that symmetric catalysis would be the way to do that. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Person number three, symmetric or asymmetric, President George W. Bush. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Answering that question at Berkeley Radio Station. Um, <laughs> Uh, that would have to be uh, symmetric catalysis because that's a sort of contradiction to the first answer. There's nothing very complex about George W. Bush. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> without getting too politically aligned, I think that would be one of the easiest things to put together. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, certainly I think everyone in Berkeley would have to agree with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, number four, symmetric or asymmetric, Google founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page. Oh, man. That's, I think that's got to be asymmetric catalysis uh, just because asymmetric catalysis is something where a lot of times people will utilize it, but because it's a relatively complex thing, they have no idea how it works. And when I think of Google, I think of just the system which is everybody utilizes, but no one can possibly understand how it does what it does so rapidly. So that would have to be asymmetric catalysis. Indeed, indeed. And finally, number five, symmetric or asymmetric, reality TV star Paris Hilton. Oh, my God. Um, I think for Paris Hilton, I would think of her as being, I don't know, I think of her as being asymmetric catalysis. I think she's someone who you think of as initially being, it's a reasonably simple thing, Mm -hmm. but uh, once you actually think about the underlying principles involved, she's obviously pretty sophisticated because of the attention and the publicity and the fame that she can uh, bring to herself by playing out the the I Claudius rule of playing the simpleton. So I think that I would have to go for asymmetric catalysis. Uh, well, she she certainly got a lot of working parts on her. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Professor McMillan, I I just want to thank you again for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Grox, playing our game uh, the Grokatron Five Thousand, and of course discussing your research. Thanks very much, Charles. All right. Thank you. All right. And now here's Jedi Master Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. Yoda. Hmm, and now the answer to last week's question of the week. Which color are humans most sensitive to? Hmm, not the color of my skin it is, but like the sun, yellow it is. The most sensitive color that human eye is sensitivity to. Hmm. Oh, arr, I have wandered the earth, the middle earth that is, looking for the rings. The rings to rule them all. Arr, but little did I know they were in trees. Arr, them trees, where did they get all their rings? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. Arr, you won't win anything, but you'll find the one ring to rule them all. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Gordon Campbell. And you can also see us on the web at www.grox.net. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.